1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not received it? Received it? And so after telling us how to deal with critical judgmentalism, Paul goes right after the sin of pride. This has really been at the heart of the issue since 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Uh, the Corinthians are prideful. And one of the symptoms of their pride is that they are attempting to puff themselves up to make themselves seem really important and significant and spiritual by boasting in particular church leaders. I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas. And the consequence of that, of course, is party lines have developed and they are lined up one against the other and the church is being torn apart by these divisions. And when you look at what Paul has described in these first four chapters, pride manifesting in boasting, manifesting in party divisions, manifesting in strife, well, you're led to say, aren't you, sin begets sin. Sin gives birth to sin, and it's wreaking havoc upon the fellowship of the Corinthian church. And so, as Paul continues to address this issue, he offers four strategies for dealing with the root of the persistent weed of pride in our hearts. Let me just list them now, and we'll work through them one by one uh, this morning. So strategy number one, uh, we are to study the example of others who model Christian humility. That's the beginning of verse six, where Paul says, I've, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos, the things that he has been writing. We are to follow the example of others who model Christian humility. Strategy number one. Strategy number two, we must submit ourselves to the rule of the word of God. Paul goes on in verse six to say, I've written these things, uh, uh, um, applied them to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, so that you do not go beyond what is written, so that you lived constrained by the written word of God. That's strategy number two, submitting to the rule of God's word. Strategy number three is we need to understand there are no special cases. Corinthians thought they were a special and unique group of individuals, and Paul is writing to humble them and remind them that there are no special cases, and that's really important for us to understand as well. And then strategy number four is we need to remember that we are debtors to grace. Paul asks that rhetorical question, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? Okay, so those are the four uh, strategies that Paul gives to us to uproot the sin of pride in our lives. Study the example of others, submit to the rule of the word, uh, and understand there are no special cases and remember you're a debtor to grace. Let's work our way through them this morning. Start with the first one, to study the example 
of others. Verse 6 again, I've applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us. Well, it's true, isn't it, that examples have a profound influence in our lives. Think about the role of parents. Parents profoundly shape and mold their children by what they say and what they do on a daily basis. And if the Lord has called you to to be a parent, maybe you've had that alarming moment where in dealing with your own children, you've, you've said something to them and the question flashed across your mind, where on earth did that come from? And not too long after that, you had a flashback to a moment when you were a child and your mother or your father said or did precisely the same thing and you realized, oh, I've been profoundly shaped and influenced by my parents. For good or ill, parents tradition their children in mannerisms, in speech, and in conduct. And Paul picks up this idea not too many verses later in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He uses the parental metaphor to describe his relationship to the Corinthians. He is their father and they are his children in the Lord. And so like children learning from a parent here, He wants them to learn how to live the Christian life from him and from other faithful Christian leaders whom the Lord has sent to serve in Corinth. Now, remember the kinds of things that Paul has been saying about himself up to this point. Think about some of the ways that he has been describing himself, some of the ways that Paul thinks about himself, and Think about how that is setting an example for the Corinthians who are struggling so much with pride. Back in chapter 2, he said that he came to them in verses 4 and 5, and his preaching was not at all impressive like the great orators that the Corinthians had come to love so much. His preaching was, was not at all impressive like theirs. He didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom, but instead he said, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in trembling, much trembling. Paul, by his own admission, his ministry was not at all impressive by worldly standards. He calls himself in chapter 2, verse 6, a farmhand planting the seed of the gospel and he, he says it's, it's the Lord alone who gives the growth. He can't take credit for any of it. It's the Lord who causes the growth. He calls himself a construction worker laboring on God's building site as the church is being built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 4 verse 1, he's a, he's a galley slave or a, an under rower. One down in the bottom of the ship pulling oar to the beat of his master's drum. He's a household steward entrusted with the mysteries of the gospel. In the household of faith, Paul is saying, I am nothing more than a servant called to steward the mysteries of God's word for the good of God's people. That's how Paul thinks about himself. But what is it that the the Corinthians wanted? Well, they didn't want a household steward. They didn't want a galley slave. 
They didn't want a construction worker or a farmhand or a man who says, my ministry is altogether unimpressive by worldly standards. No, the Corinthians wanted a celebrity preacher. They, they wanted someone who was a powerful public speaker. But Paul has, has been repeated, repeatedly insisting that the gospel minister that God uses embraces the cross. He embraces the cross not only first and foremost as the burden of his message, but then also as the template of his ministry. Unimpressive, foolish in the eyes of the world, seemingly weak, but wholeheartedly committed and submitted to the will of God. And now he tells the Corinthians why he's been laboring that point from the beginning. And my friends, what ought to be true of Christian ministers also ought to be true of all Christian believers. Because the reality is this, that a gospel minister's job is only halfway done when he preaches the word of God faithfully. The other half of his ministry requires that he live by that word faithfully as well. He is to be a model in his own life of the truth that he proclaims. Now, as I say those words, I, I immediately am struck by how searching of a thing that is to say. How searching it is to be called, for anyone to be called, whether it be as a Christian minister, as a Christian leader in the church, or somebody called to teach God's word to others. How searching of a thing it is to be called to do that and to live it out. That Paul will say in chapter 16 of this letter in verse 4, uh, imitate me. And earlier in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he, he will say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's a searching thing to be called to. Those of us called to, to leadership and teaching the Bible to say, the truth that I proclaim, I seek by the grace of God to live so that you can imitate me as I humbly seek to imitate Christ. And so I ask those called to leadership, those called to teach the word of God to others and to ask myself, can we, can I say this from our hearts? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as I follow after Jesus. If I can, I just want to insert a prayer request at this point as I think about what Paul is saying here. I know many of you faithfully pray for your pastors and your elders, and we are deeply, deeply grateful for that because we are dependent men. But if you're ever wondering, what can I pray for my church leaders? Here's something to pray for us. Pray that we would, by grace, be living illustrations of the truth that we teach. That our lives would never compromise or contradict the gospel that we proclaim. And so this is a searching call. It's a searching call for those called to the ministry of the word, but here's the thing. It's also a searching call for those who listen and receive that ministry of the word. 
And I say that for this reason, brothers and sisters, because if you see the lives of those who teach the Bible shaped and changed by the truth that they teach, then you have to reckon with the fact that the truth of Scripture is for more than just filling your head with a bunch of information. That preaching and teaching in the household of faith is for far more than downloading a bunch of biblical data into our brains. Having a head filled with knowledge. Yes, we need to learn and be filled with the knowledge of Christ. But we learn as Christians to live, do we not? Learning is for living. The truth contained in God's word is not stagnant or static uh, in our lives. It's meant to change us. It's meant to revolutionize our very lives. And so Paul calls the Corinthians to follow the example of faithful leaders. And in particular, he seeks to model gospel humility before them that they might follow his example. So that's, that's strategy one, to kill pride Dear friends, we need to foster a culture where leaders set an example as they follow Jesus in humility and we're to imitate those spiritual leaders whom God has provided. That's strategy number one. Strategy number two is we must submit ourselves to the rule of God's word. We see that clearly in the rest of verse six, don't we? I've applied these things to my... Self and Apollos, Paul says, for your benefit, brothers. And here's the, the, the particular reason he says he's done this, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written. Isn't it the case that pride shrivels up and dies as we learn to submit the whole of our lives to the word of God? Paul wants us to understand that in the Christian life, this, this is necessary. This must happen. Self must be dethroned. And Christ must hold his proper place in our lives and rule over us with the scepter of his word. What is written, you see, what is written in Holy Scripture is not mere pious advice to be followed as mood and opinion and feelings dictate. Now, the word of God is given to regulate and direct and guide and rule our lives. We were reminded of that in the shorter catechism question that we, we read and answered together, weren't we? What is the only rule to direct us for how we may glorify and enjoy him? The word of God given in the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we are to glorify and enjoy him. And so this is our confession as Christians, that Jesus rules us by his word. The whole of our lives, public and private, all of it comes under the reign of King Jesus our lives are constrained by what is written. Incidentally, let's, I just want to unpack this for a few minutes and think about some of its implications. And maybe this is one that you wouldn't think of right away. But let's start here. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself the question, why is a session 
or a board of elders in a Presbyterian church, why is a session called a church court? Right? Why, is a, why is a group of elders serving here at Trinity a church court? I wonder if you've ever asked that question. Well, let's try to answer that by asking another question. What does a church court do, or what do courts in general do? What do they do with the law? Well, they don't write laws. Now, as I'm saying that, I'm realizing your minds are probably wondering to civil courts and set that aside. That's another discussion for another time. But what are courts supposed to do with the law? They're not to create laws or write laws. They're to rule under the law. They're to administer the law. And in the same way, the session of a local church Presbytery as a higher court of the church, they don't write laws. They're to administer the law of Christ as he has given it to us in Holy Scripture. Elders don't make laws, but are merely called to administer the word of Christ in the lives of God's people. That's why we call a session a church court. But expanding on that idea, we're not to go beyond what is written. We could apply it not only to church government and the, the worship of the church, but we could also think about it in terms of the moral and spiritual dimensions of our lives as, as followers of Jesus. And what it means very simply is this, that our consciences are bound by the word of God. Self is dethroned and Jesus Christ is preeminent and he rules our lives by his word. That's our commitment as followers of Christ. And I think some of the implications of that are, are pretty straightforward, aren't they? Right? We, we will not live under the word if we do not know the word and study the word and regularly sit under the teaching and preaching of God's word, or put it another way. Uh, if the word of God has no functional presence in our minds and in our hearts and in our lives, then it's not going to bear very much fruit, is it? Well, let's just be clear about one, one, one other thing before we move on to the next strategy, because today, think about this, the, the idea of submitting to something outside of yourself sounds completely ridiculous. The idea of submitting to something other than your own desires, your own opinions, your own feelings today sounds repressive to people because of how we've been trained. We've been taught to buy into the lie that the best life is a life where you submit to nothing but yourself. But dear friends, those who resolve not to go beyond what is written, who are learning to dethrone self again and again, day by day, and submit to the rule of King Jesus we're learning this, aren't we? we? We don't find this to be repressive or oppressive or constraining or joy inhibiting. Instead, we are learning more and more to say with the psalmist, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Psalmist goes on, moreover, by them your servant is warned 
and in keeping them, there is great reward. You see, a life lived by what is written is a joy-filled life of obedience to King Jesus, who knows what's best for you and me. So strategy one is to follow the example of others. Strategy two is to live under the rule of the word. And then strategy three is to understand that there are no special cases. This is what Paul is getting at in the first rhetorical question there in verse 7. Who sees anything different in you, he asks. We might paraphrase the question to what makes you so special? Because you see, the Corinthians thought they were really something special. And so they boasted in their leaders. They boasted in their parties. They boasted in their spirituality. They boasted in their gifts. And above all, they boasted in themselves. They thought they were a cut above the rest. That's why Paul has had to come to them and say, as you remember he did back in 1 Corinthians 1, was it verse 26, I think, when he started this line of questioning. Uh, he, he says to them, don't you remember who you were before God called you to union in, in Jesus Christ? Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. He's saying, you are not nearly as impressive as you think you are, dear Corinthians. You see, the reality is while we're busy trying to, to puff ourselves up, to boast in ourselves, God sees right through it all, doesn't he? As we seek to make a name for ourselves and establish our significance, as we seek to make our own identity, God is not taken in by our own publicity. While we're busy trying to distinguish ourselves and set ourselves apart from others, so often that very desire to, to be somebody is the very thing that confirms we are just like everyone else. Who sees anything different in you, Paul asks. Are you, are you better than anyone else? You see, friends, here's, here's the bad news of this passage in a self-esteem culture. In a self-esteem culture that has taught us, basically from childhood onwards, that we are superstars just waiting for our chance. Here's the bad news. Before the gaze of God, there is nothing distinguishing in you or in me that sets us apart from anyone else. There is nothing special in me or in you that compels God to love and accept and affirm you. Now, the reality is that left to ourselves, we're in big trouble. Were we to waltz into the heavenly courtroom, dependent upon our accomplishments, our attempts at making a name for ourselves and do-gooding, we are in loads and loads of trouble, and we are in for a real shocker. If we're really going to deal with our pride problem, then we need to put to death once and for all that the, the persistent idea that God owes me because I'm special. And so we must study and, and learn from the example of others. We must submit to the rule of the word of God 
and we must recognize the truth about ourselves that there are no special cases. We're not nearly so special after all, Paul is communicating to the Corinthians. And then finally, let's come to the fourth strategy here. Strategy number four is that we must learn to live as debtors to grace. Look at the end of verse seven and the other questions that Paul asks. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Think of it this way. Of of all the things that you value, physical and spiritual, name one that does not come from the good and gracious hand of God. Of all of the blessings that you enjoy, of all of the good things, name one that is not a donation of sheer, unmerited, extravagant grace. It's all of grace. And so Paul is saying, if it's, if it's all gift, then why are you taking credit for it? Why are you boasting in it? As if you did not receive it. You didn't earn it, Corinthians. You don't deserve it. Your privileges from the material blessings you enjoy to the spiritual gifts that you have and all the spiritual blessings that you enjoy in Christ Jesus, they are all gifts of God's amazing grace. And so I wonder, do we see how what Paul is saying in these two brief Verses really cut against the grain of so much contemporary thinking. I said a minute ago, we're we're told and we're taught and trained to think that we're something special. And when we have something, when we've achieved something, we're told, you deserve it. Or you've earned it. But you see, here's the thing. We will never really grasp how, how rich and how deep and how real grace is. We will miss the wonder of grace if we think, if we actually think there's something special about us or that we deserve it, whatever it is. Grace is only amazing when we understand that it saves a helpless wretch like me. And so if you claim the credit, you're You're minimizing grace and you're minimizing sin and you're robbing God of the glory that belongs to him because he is the gracious giver and you, we, are the undeserving receivers. And I think when that sinks in, when this truth really gets a hold of our hearts and when you begin to see that everything that you have and everything that you are is by grace, And if you know that you are loved beyond all imagining, despite all of your unloveliness, and you are are still loved despite all of your persistent unloveliness, when you see that, the extravagant wonder of grace, what happens to pride and boasting? What happens to pride and and boasting when you come to terms with sheer, unmerited grace. It shrivels up and dies, doesn't it? When you grasp that all of the credit, all of the praise belongs entirely to the Lord, who 
who redeemed you and who crowns your life with steadfast love and mercy. And so here are four strategies for helping us kill pride at its root. Study the example of others, as as imperfect as those examples may be, because in them we'll get to see what gospel humility looks like, or at least the pursuit of it. And then he says you must submit to the rule of the word of God and not go beyond what is written. The best life is a life ruled by King Jesus' word. And then he reminds us this, this humbling lesson. There are no special cases. No exemptions here from what Paul is saying. And then finally and above all, we need to learn to live as debtors to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because nothing kills boasting. Nothing puts pride to death like seeing we deserve nothing but the wrath and curse of God in and of ourselves. But instead, we have received love. Instead, we have received acceptance and adopting grace and love that holds us fast and will bring us all the way home into the presence of God forever. Love displayed in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. And when we see that grace upon Grace has been freely given to us. Where does that put us in the end? Not up on the throne, but instead down low in the dust. Grace, my friends, trains us to be humble. And if I can add to that, as those who confess sovereign grace... (laughs) we ought to understand that there really is no grounds whatsoever for boasting in ourselves. Okay, so there they are, four strategies for killing our pride. And may the Lord apply them to our hearts today and in the days to come like a, like a good dose of Roundup to kill pride at its root so that all the glory may go to God. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you do not leave us uh, in our sin, but you come to us in Jesus Christ and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives and you seek our growth and our good and our conformity to Jesus Christ. And so we confess, first of all, our tendency to deal with pride superficially in our lives. And we pray instead that you would apply these gospel remedies to our hearts and to our lives to deal with pride at its root. Make us humble Christians who boast in none other but Christ and his cross. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.